night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is journalist Bina Shaw and author of Before She Sleeps, a novel. Conjuring Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, Bina Shah, Pakistan's internationally renowned author, takes the parable of women selected for breeding to a terrifying new level. In her dystopian thriller, women in the Middle East and Asia have had their numbers drastically reduced by war, gender selection, and disease, making the ratio of women to men alarmingly low. The consequence is that women must take multiple husbands in order to produce more female children, but not all women agree to submit. A graduate of Wellesley College and Harvard University, uh, Bina is a regular contributor to the International New York Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Bina. Hi, Catherine. Good morning, and thank you so much for speaking to me today. Well, this is great. We're going to be talking about your book, and I guess the first question is, uh, why did you decide to write the book? Why now? And why is it, I guess, why would it be so compelling, given the context of what's happening uh, in your country, and you're in Pakistan, here in the United States, and around the world? I had the idea for this book uh, about 12 years ago, and I started off with a short story, which ultimately became the book's first chapter. And I was inspired by, or I was compelled to write this story because of where I live and the situation for women in South Asia, which is not ideal, to put it mildly. Uh, And I wanted to express some of the things that I have been witnessing and some of the thoughts and feelings that I've been having about the status of women. But I wanted to write about it in artistic form. And I thought that I wanted to go even further by making this into a, a dystopian tale, a tale of a future that nobody really wants. And I thought that was the perfect metaphor for the way women are forced to live in repressive countries, in countries that are very conservative, not necessarily only Muslim countries, because India next door to Pakistan is a Hindu majority country. Uh, There's tremendous variety and diversity, in fact, across South Asia and the Middle East. But the one thing that we all have in common is that there are patriarchies in place which keep women in an inferior status as compared to men. So that's sort of the background for where this book came from. Now, I started writing the book in earnest in 2012, and it's taken me four years to get here. And I think it's just arrived at, as you say, a very important point in our current affairs and our history. Yeah, when you're talking about patriarchal societies, Pakistan, India, I, I think, in, it, of course, it's, it's, it's very different here in the United States, but still that whole patriarchal, uh, attitude prevails. We still haven't had a woman president, for instance. We can start with that. Um, we came so close. We came so close, but we didn't do it. So, um, so that says something as well. You know, you said it, it took you four years. Uh, was there a struggle, or what? that's a long time, isn't it? Or you know, in, in ter- to get the get the book out. Um, Well, it was a very complicated book to write. Uh, I had never written this kind of book in this genre before. This is dystopian slash science fiction slash speculative fiction. And I had previously only written quite realistic style books about Pakistan, about Pakistanis, about life here. So this was a big switch for me, and I had to take my time to get it right. So this was a different medium, you're saying? This is a different way. A different way. genre. Yeah. A different, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah exactly. A different genre, yeah. So that's that was part of the, I don't know, I'm calling it a struggle. Um, okay, so let's start with it. I mean, it's, it, let's, uh, you know, I don't want to give, I hate to give away the book, exactly what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe we can talk about it in the, obviously, in the context of, of your country and where you live. I mean, before the show, I asked you predominantly, where do you live? And you live in Pakistan. Um, so, yeah. So what is the, what is the, the patriarchal culture? Uh, Describe that to us. Well, as you know, Pakistan is a Muslim-majority country. It also happens to be very socially and culturally conservative. And so there's an interplay between people who want to practice a very conservative form of Islam 
and the already present uh, social, cultural, tribal customs that have existed before the advent of Islam. And they all combine in this way to very much separate and segregate men from women, to cast men in the roles of the providers and earners and protectors, and women in the role of the homemakers, the mothers, the housewives. So these are very strict gender roles that we are now in the process of breaking out of. But we're still very much at the beginning of the journey. And I think it's going to take time for things to move into a more progressive type of society. So that's the climate where I am in right now. So in that climate, and given your status as a writer, as an author, as a journalist, also a graduate of Wellesley College, Harvard University, how do you fit into that culture on a day-to-day basis? That's a really good question. And I think the answer is that I find myself very much different from the majority of women, from, from many people uh, of my gender. And I th- I'm comfortable with that difference. I do feel separate from other people quite a lot. And, but I think that gives me the status of the outside observer, which is so necessary to being able to write. Because if you're too much in the midst of everything, if you're too accepted, if you're too, you know, you go along with the crowd too much, then you are not going to be able to observe and, and write relevant commentary. So there's a flip side to to this situation, and I use it to my advantage. All right. What what kind of resistance do you find on a daily basis, for instance, or what kind of a reaction to your book? Uh, but just in terms of your general living style, what are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do as a woman, uh, which may be very different in, uh, well, let's say, in the United States? Personally, I have tremendous freedom compared to most other women in this country because I come from a very progressive family. And so I'm allowed to dress as I like. I'm allowed to go where I want. I'm allowed to do what I like, to work, to write, to say what I want to say, to keep whatever company I want. That's not the case for most women in Pakistan. Uh, A lucky minority have the same kind of freedom and that seems to correlate to their levels of education and the social class that they come from, so on and so forth. Uh, But legally, uh, as a Pakistani woman, there are a lot of avenues that are not open to me and I don't enjoy the same equality before the law. I don't have the hope that I can enjoy the same protection before the law. Social customs, as I said, are very discriminatory, so it goes on. So there are a lot of legal, let's say, ramifications to being a woman, a woman that you don't have, you're, that you're not privileged to, for instance, uh, what owning, pro- I don't know if you're married or not married or uh, you know, what your marital status is, but how does that fit in, in terms of what you are allowed to, uh, what the privileges that you may or may not have? Right. I'm a single woman, but for example, suppose I was to marry somebody from another country, I cannot as a woman give Pakistani citizenship to my children. That is something that only men can do. That's just one small example. I'll give you another example. Uh, In the elections, now under the Constitution, every Pakistani male or female, female is allowed to vote. However, in very conservative areas of the country, up in the north, in the mountains, in the tribal areas, Women are strongly discouraged, if not right, if not downright, forbidden to vote, to go to polling stations and cast their votes. So these are things that we are always trying to to fight against and to change for all of Pakistan's women, because it's not good enough that I get my individual freedom and my sisters don't. So we're trying to make this something that everybody gets access to. So in doing that, how do you do it? Do you have a group of women or political allies that you work with to actually make these changes or or how does how does that happen for you well i as a writer have a responsibility to to highlight these problems and i do that a lot through my columns and also through a very strong use of social media you raise the issue you alert politicians and parliamentarians uh, especially the female ones to the issues, and then they raise these issues on the floor of parliament or at meetings or advisory committees or what have you. There's a lot of networks, women's groups networks, women's activist networks 
they worked very hard this time around in the elections to mobilize the vote for women. So this is how we slowly and gradually enact change. Because the law is there. You can vote as a woman. But how do you subvert the customs and traditions and the, the roadblocks and obstacles that are put in the way of women who actually want to exercise their democratic rights? So that's the cultural lag. The laws are in place, but the attitudes haven't changed yet. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's also there's also very the the laws are there, but they're poorly implemented. They are not followed through. And if if people, you know, for example, say that you are prevented from being able to vote by your husband, nobody's going to come and prosecute him or 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 say, "Hey, buddy, you're breaking the law." And and uh, the, it would almost be impossible for that to actually happen. So these are all the things that, that we need to overcome. All right. So given that context, your book, right? A very different kind of book for you. Let's talk about the book. Um, yes. Yeah. Tell us about it. Tell us, you know, g- g- sort of give us an overview without uh, giving away the whole story. Absolutely. So I envision a society 70 years in the future. The book is set in a, a very specific geographical area that stretches from Karachi, the south port city where I live in Pakistan. Imagine going west over the coast of, of Balochistan, Iran, curving around the Persian Gulf, ending up on the coast of Oman and Muscat, its capital cities. So that's a southwest Asian territory which I imagine to come into existence after a long period of war and upheaval, nuclear war between India and Pakistan. And uh, because of this war, because of the fallout, the radiation, a virus takes hold. It's a mutation of cancer, which affects only women. It's a it's a fast-mutating HPV virus, which gives the women a deadly form of cervical cancer, and they are they die. And already, because of the cultural practices of preference of for girl f- girls o- uh, for boys over girls. People have already reduced the ratio of females to males. So we end up with a society where there's perhaps one woman to 20 men. Now imagine what kind of disruption that causes in society, the upheaval, and how an authoritarian government takes over using technology, using terror, using secret police and control to try and step in and stabilize the situation. What kind of society do they set up? What does that society look like for the women of that city and that area? And then you take a group of women, a handful of women, six, eight, maybe a dozen at the most, who do not want to submit to the rules and regulations of this new regime. What do they do to resist this? And how do they survive? So we've got an overall post apocalyptic situation a government that has stepped in to restore order and yet it's it's order but with huge imbalances built into their system and then you have this band of resistors of rebels and what do they do to try and even the odds against them that is the story in a nutshell mm, that's an exciting story but how close to the truth do you think that could be in 70 years we're already already in a situation where in certain isolated pockets of places, rural China, rural India, rural Nepal, where there are not enough women to men. And that's because of gender selection, the practice of aborting female fetuses, or of simply not looking after your girl children, allowing them to perish because of malnutrition and poor medical care, because you want boys more than you want girls. This is a huge cultural issue. It is not related to religion. It is related very much to uh, the idea of patriarchy and survival. And so I took what I was seeing happening in small pockets and imagined this expanding to a larger scale. And for me, for anybody, I imagine that as a disaster. So this is the kind of very, very difficult and very challenging situation And then, you know, of course, my premise is that whenever you're trying to restore order, in quotation marks, it's the women that are told they have to sacrifice everything. They have to become the builders of the new society, the mothers of a new generation. And so you've got them forced to marry more than one man in order to not make the men feel deprived of 
of, of a wife, of female companionship, and they are forced to bear as many pregnancies as possible. I've got them sort of, you know, being forced to ingest fertility drugs so that they carry multiple pregnancies. And again, these are things that I do see happening in places where I live. It's not widespread, but it is practiced. So I took all of these and I amplified and distorted them so that really things felt very bad and very frightening. And I think that's what any good dystopia is. It's a world that could come true, and that's why it's so scary. Uh, Well, and it's all of those issues, I think, uh, that you describe in that dystopian world that we need to think about, even though they are exaggerated, because I'm thinking you said something about women have to make the sacrifice. And there's something kind of, I I think that's true sort of worldwide, even in democracies like the United States, it's the woman who is expected to make the sacrifices, even given in a situation where you have children and mother and father working, it's the woman who ends up sacrificing either uh, she's working at her job, and at the same time, she's the one who usually takes care of the children more or has more responsibilities than the men. So it kind of plays itself out globally, doesn't it? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think the only places in the world where we see this trend reversing itself is in the Scandinavian countries and possibly the Netherlands where they have, and Iceland and where they have enacted policies, for example, where men and women get equal parental leave when a baby is born, paternity leave or maternity leave, and they work it out so that, you know, the man can take an equal amount of time off when, when, when the family has a baby. So without these sort of very calculated and decisive interventions to balance and imbalance, you do end up with a situation where the woman is expected to sacrifice her career, sacrifice her job ambitions, sacrifice her body even. For example, I mean, imagine if Roe versus Wade is overturned and women will be sacrificing a lot to bring to, to bear pregnancies that they may not necessarily want. So, yes, there's a lot of sacrifice that women are expected to make or forced into making. And I think this book is also a, a way, an artistic way, of a, a literary way of highlighting that imbalance, that unfairness. Yeah, exactly that. And I think uh, I, the question is, you mentioned the Netherlands and Iceland and Scandinavian countries don't seem to have that cultural attitude or history. Why not? Where, where does that come Yeah. Again, as I said, uh, they did, but then they had a very strong movement. For example, I'm sure you've heard of the famous strike, in, the women's strike in Iceland, where for one day the women did not go to work, they didn't do anything, and the whole country came to a standstill. And that was to prove their importance in society, their contributions to society. And as I said, they, the, those Scandinavian countries have enacted laws because they have also, let, let's not forget, they've, they've got a high participation of women in governance. They've got women ministers. They've got women foreign ministers. They've got women parliamentarians and women, you know, representatives. So the laws and the thing that w- when you include women in government, in decision making, in power, then they're thinking, what, well, wait a second, what about women? What are we doing to make sure that women are included in the democratic process? And so they get they get family friendly laws. They get women friendly laws. Nobody's penalized if they become pregnant on the job. Nobody gets penalized if a mom needs to work flexible hours. In fact, you will see in a place like Denmark, dads will be allowed to leave the office at four o'clock so they can go and get the children from school. That's the father's job. So we've got it's a combination of things that have developed over the last 30 years and and they've resulted in a more equitable society. In terms of a more equitable society, Bina, what do you think about the Me Too movement? Me Too movement is uh, long overdue. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you how glad I am to see women speaking up and talking about things that they've endured in silence for far too long. And I I still do feel it's outrageous that in the 21st century, we have a situation where women go to work to earn money, to feed their families, to support themselves, and they are considered to be sexual playthings for the men in the offices. 
or the men that are hiring these women. I, I can't understand why such a regressive mentality still exists, especially in developed countries such as the United States. It's mind-boggling. So I'm very glad to see this being brought out into the open. Yeah, and, and I so am I. And I guess I'm not living here. I don't know. I'm not surprised. I see it maybe, uh, you know, you see these powerful men who have been brought down, who have uh, exploited women, but having just worked in in uh, social services even, um, you yeah. see this happen every day in, in places where you wouldn't expect it, where you would have bosses who are social workers or psychologists, because, you know, that's been my experience, but it's the same right. kind of thing. And they're not necessarily such powerful men, but yet this kind of behavior still exists. And I, I, I probably don't have a friend or a colleague uh, including myself, who haven't been exposed to those kinds of uh, behaviors in the workplace. Of course. I mean, yeah. this is, I, I think this comes from a, a, of a mentality of entitlement. Uh, these men obviously think that this is something that comes with the job. Exposure to a lot of women and the opportunity to behave inappropriately with them. And especially if they're in a position of power over that woman, then the ability to wield that power and to coerce a woman into going along with with his whatever it is that he wants, with his inappropriateness. So, yeah, I, I don't know what else I can say about it, but I am very glad that Me Too exists. So what about education for young women? Let's start well, in, in Pakistan, for instance, the women who... I mean, because that's, and the young men, I guess, in terms of education, how do you see, is there anything that can be done when you start with these young kids when they're in elementary school or middle school or, you know, high school, so that it changes, helps to change this kind of behavior relationship between young men and young women? Well, we have a completely different set of of problems to deal with. Uh, men and women, go- girls and boys, are not well integrated on the social scene or I- in a social setting to interact with each other. This is something that has been discouraged because of our social conservatism and our religious conservatism. So you will always see people saying, well, girls and boys should not go to the same schools. There should be separate schools for girls, separate schools for boys. And it's very few people that are comfortable, for example, with a co-educational school setting. So that's the first problem, you know. Girls and boys just aren't used to each other. We need to change that. We need to make people comfortable, at least even in the educational setting, if not with the presence of the opposite gender, but with with the idea that the opposite gender are human beings and should be treated as such. So if you you start with that idea, then I think you get you get a, a good change in mindset and behaviors will follow. Yeah. It's a difficult task, I would imagine, to be able to do that. To be, I mean, you're talking about a huge educational system that to have to change, right? Um, well, we have very big problems in Pakistan with education. We're in what we already call an education emergency, not enough children in school. Uh, 60 million children out of school. school. So we we have a big problem with that. Bina, we have about one minute left, and exactly one minute left. So I hate to cut this interview short, but it's, you know... It's been great talking to you, obviously, and I want to make sure that everyone knows uh, they can purchase the book online, I assume, Amazon, bookstores, everywhere. Uh, Yeah, and the title of the book is Before She Sleeps, a novel. Bina Shaw is the author. Bina, can you give me uh, a website that we can go to uh, so that uh, if readers want to know more about the book, more about you, what you're doing? Yes, that's www.binashah.net. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Absolutely a pleasure. Goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. MailJet is changing how teams email with the launch of their collaboration toolkit. Create and send emails with your team faster with real-time collaboration and in-app commenting. Learn why businesses like Product Hunt, Microsoft, Avis, and more send millions of emails every day with MailJet at hello.mailjet.com forward slash voice and try MailJet Premium for one month free. That's hello.mailjet.com forward slash voice. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is New York Times bestselling author Thomas Moore, Ph.D. His new book is Ageless Soul, The Lifelong Journey towards meaning and joy. Thomas Moore has been a monk, a musician, a university professor, and a psychotherapist. In Ageless Soul, he provides readers with a new way to think about aging. In contrast to their perception that aging means diminishment, he regards aging as the process by which we become more fully ourselves, a series of initiations rather than losses. He explores how to find new meaning, vigor, and connection in aging. He includes understanding that long-held anger can inhibit productive aging and how to let it go. 
reframing retirement, embracing mature sexuality, connecting with community, mentoring, and leaving a legacy. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Thomas. Thank you, Catherine. Happy to be with you. Well, it's a great book, especially, and you're 77 years old, so I have to you. I assume you're the expert in aging. Um, besides, I wouldn't go that far, but I, well, <laughs> I certainly know what I'm talking about. You definitely know what you're talking about, and uh, I guess my first, I've always thought, to be honest with you, I always thought about aging is, is a series of losses, and how you cope with those losses, and that you're all, you know, from the time you're born, and you're you know, you're out of the womb and you've lost the comfort of the uh, floating around in your mother's womb. And that's a loss that you and when you stop nursing and when you leave your parents and have to go to to uh, nursery school. So how does that fit into the it, so I was trying to kind of put this all in a framework like isn't aging a series of losses? I mean, you say no. So let, let's talk about that. Well, <clears throat> Yes, there are losses involved. There's no question, but everything you just mentioned could be seen from another point of view. Because, okay, you leave your mother's, uh, the womb and your mother's uh, embrace and so on, but you enter into a bigger world. And these two things always go together, kind of a loss and a gain. So all I want to do is, is emphasize the gain because when people today think about aging, they tend to think of the loss side of it. And I think there's such there's so much to gain at each stage, right, right through when you get to be older. And for example, um, it's certainly true that I've lost some of my physical capacity, not a whole lot, but you know, certainly some, and have some aches and pains. But um, the fact is, I I've had much more experience. I know how to handle things that before I used to just flub up all the time. So I wouldn't want to be 20 again for that reason. You know, go through all of those uh, all of those problems of not knowing how the world works. Um, on the other hand, I wish I had the body of a twenty year old. That'd be nice. But uh, you know, there are losses and gains, whichever way you go. And I I think we ought to take a look at the positive side. Well, before we take a look at the positive side, because this is something I think that uh, most of us. Do concern ourselves with. You mentioned you can't do the same kinds of physical activity, let's say, as a 20-year-old. But what about those people who also have uh, uh, more physical ailments than than just not being 20 again, but sickness and high blood pressure and and all of the things that do accompany aging and arthritis and you know chronic kinds of diseases that aren't necessarily going to kill you, but they definitely impact on your life. So, what would be the flip side of those. Well, I, I know what you're talking about. Believe me, I feel that every day. Uh, I take a blood pressure medicine. I go to a cardiologist. Um, I know what you're talking about there. Um, things do come along, illnesses. And for some people, you know, when they get a certain age, the serious illnesses are begin to be a real threat. That is certainly part of aging. And I don't want to be a Pollyanna here and say it's all wonderful. It really isn't. Uh, on the other hand, um, there's something, when you think of it more deeply, there's something about becoming more of a human being. Uh, your personality, again, your experience, uh, hopefully you've been educated as you go. And you've, you've gone through, uh, as I say, gone through initiations, gone through passages. And that has made you into a person who is um, more fully alive in, in some ways compared to someone who's younger. There are things that we do have when we get older. There are things we can do, like um, guiding uh, younger people. You can't do that when you're a young person. That's something that you develop as you get older. And I talk to an awful lot of people in writing, for writing this book, and a lot of them discovered that once they retired, that they, that they had a chance to do things in life that were very meaningful to them. Um, helping other other people or getting involved in projects that they couldn't do otherwise. So, as I say, um, the things go together. You you you're a human being. You 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 have to deal with illness. On the other hand, you're a human being and you become more of a person the older you get. Yeah, I think one of the things and and that you obviously you just mentioned and obviously you talk about it in the book is that whole issue of community and mentoring and associating yourself with younger people who you can help, who you can make a difference in their lives. And I think yeah. that's really important. And I I know as I'm aging, that's one of the things I, I 
some of these communities where people, I don't know, they call them retirement communities or they're kind of segregated communities and everybody's the same age. To me, that sort of goes against what you're saying. It kind of isolates you uh, in, in a sense and you're just with old people who are growing older and not aging gracefully. Yes, one of the main themes in my book about this is that uh, throughout our lives, we are dealing with this interplay of being young and being old. It's not so literal. It's not just about how many years you have. Uh, some people are, are fairly old in their style, in their way of being as a person when they're younger. Uh, I always use examples like the, the great poet John Keats died when he was 26, and he wrote all kinds of uh, very profound things before he, before he died. I, th- I think that's just an example that age is not as literal as we think. So we can cultivate both youth and age even when we're younger. One of the things I found pretty interesting about this book is I've asked younger people if it meant anything to them. And one, I remember one young man telling me, he said, look, he said, I'm turning 30. This means everything to me. And he felt that turning 30 was one of these passages into, into, of aging. And I think that's something that's very interesting for all of us, that we tend to be too literal about the number of our years and about the physical, our physical reality, rather than, you know, I use the word soul, you know, the, rather than the condition of our soul, that as, as people we actually are improving rather than just weakening. Yeah. Uh, can, all right, let's, uh, let me ask you this then. Can, well, let's talk about those people who, maybe not at 30, but as they age, begin to get, get, feel lonely. And sometimes mm-hmm. because they lose a lot of people in their yeah. lives, significant people, whether it's friends or relatives or even their own children, if they live long enough. So um, that kind of loneliness. I have a, a 95-year-old mother, and I think that's a huge issue with her uh, because there's nobody left in her her sphere of friends or even relatives who can connect with her on her, you know, uh, where she comes from in the context of her life because they're gone. And I think that's very difficult as one ages. Yes, it is something we have to deal with. And it's a sad thing. I, I feel that. I, you know, I go through a day and I think about people I wish were still here and with me, my parents, for example, and other people. Um, and that's a sad thing, but you know, there's something about feeling this, the, the sadness of getting older that actually does something positive for us. I mean, again, that makes us people of some depth, and we're not living on the surface anymore. Those, you know, these, we talk about passages and initiations you go through, they all involve some amount of pain. And part of that pain is just natural, it's just part of life. I, so I feel that I, I miss people, but I realize this is part of growing older. And at the present time, um, my mother-in-law, who is 93, is living with us. And what I, don't, I don't hear that from her, that she misses people so much. But what I do see is that she is more social and more involved with people than I am. It's, I think you have a choice. You can... You can give too much to that feeling of loss and of missing people and not take advantage of the opportunities to be with other people. You have to do it yourself. You can't wait for people to come to you. You have to really decide, I'm going to live. I'm going to live no matter what age I am. And part of that living means to connect with other people. Yeah, I think that word connect sort of describes your book in a, in, in a way that connectedness that that and you can connect in different ways with different people different things you talk about even second or third career paths I mean that's an, one way of doing it uh, which is really I think really important um, one of the th- also I mentioned it when I was doing your intro but anger people hold on to their anger and and that really is destructive that's not helpful either mentally or physically as one ages so how do you get rid of those those kind of old hurts those old angers uh, or that well, angry those <clears throat> yes I, I know uh, we, you do meet a lot of people who are as they get older seem to be angry about things and uh, uh, they get crotchety and, and difficult uh, part of that is that it's uh, it's not easy getting through days, you know, when you're dealing with uh, physical complaints and problems. Um, and 
Uh, on the other hand, I think one of the reasons, and here I'd be speaking as a psychotherapist, that uh, all of us have uh, anger in us, some more than others, due to unfinished things that happened in the past, like things that we never really worked through. It's amazing when you talk to people in their 60s and 70s how experiences they had in their teens and 20s still, still live through them. And some of that accounts for anger. Uh, in fact, a lot of people are angry about things that happened to them long ago. The only way I know to deal with that is to talk about it in a way that really has, a, has an effect on, y- on your emotions. And we do that in psychotherapy. You know, I mean, I listen. One of the biggest things I have to do in my work is listen to people, let them know that they're being heard, and help them sort out some of the feelings they have about the past. And I know that not everybody can do that, but we do have people we can talk to, most of us. And if we could just tell those stories and um, decide that we don't have to live as angry people all the time, uh, we can make some progress. You can't clean it all up, but I think you can make enough progress so you're not just an angry personality as you get older. How effective, Thomas, do you think uh, psychotherapy is for people over 65? I know it used to be, you know, anybody over 65, it's not worth going into counseling or therapy because it's not going to work. It's, you know, they're too old, too old to change. Um, So what would you say about that? Somebody really investing. Yeah. I have to say in my experience, it's just the opposite. I have a lot of older people in my practice over the years. And right now, for example, there are a couple of people in my practice in their late 80s. And... It means everything to them because, uh, because what it does is the therapy gives them a chance to, to clarify some of the things they've been through in their life. And working through your past is a big part of getting older. You know, to, uh, it really helps if you can look over your past, sort things through, and feel better about what has happened. I don't mean you clean it up at all, but that you, you just understand it more deeply. And... Uh, that tends to take away some of the anger that people have. But I can tell you that my work with older people is so rich, so incredibly rich, and it means so much to them that it just blows my mind to hear that people would say it's not a good idea to do it when you're older. Maybe that's the best time to do some therapy. Yeah, when you're probably uh, as a social worker, I think it's always good to do therapy at every stage. I think it's helpful. It, you don't have to, <laughs> so that's my bias. I always say everyone should be in therapy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so should you know, as a therapist, uh, I think all therapists should be as well. So I, I think that's a good thing. Um, let's talk about this because when we talk, I know you talk about this in the book as well. What about sex and the senior citizen? Because that's a whole big issue, especially since people are living longer and are more healthy as they live longer and expectations for sex changes as one gets older. Uh, but it, and, and that's, that's okay, that's good, but it's something, that's kind of a taboo subject, uh, sex in the senior citizen. Well, sex is a taboo subject for our society generally. Yeah. We still haven't come to grips with it. And, uh, you know, the, all the sex, sex we see in the movies and, 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 and the Internet and so on uh, is very symptomatic. It's not like you, you don't find sexuality in our media that is very human and deep and understanding and all of that. It doesn't guide you. doesn't help you. It's just acting out, acting out our, our confusion. So we haven't dealt with sex. I think part of it has to do, and again, speaking as a therapist, that part of it has to do with the fact that many, many people today, especially older people today, were raised in a religious atmosphere that uh, was not very positive about sex. At least that's where, when I'm working with people about their sexuality, that's where it often goes. You know, Maybe that's not true of younger people today, but the older people, I think that's very true. So we have to work out, we have to reconcile the spiritual life with our sexual life. And that's a very big thing. It's something I write about all the time. Um, The other thing about it is that I think we have to expand our idea of what sexuality means. It's not just about um, making love, uh, you know, physically, a physical expression. It's not just that. It's a matter of being who you are. 
Are you um, happy with life? Can you have physical pleasures in your life, like even something like really delicious food? Can you cook, uh, have that sensual experience of cooking? Um, Do you get out in nature? Um, Is there something about you that is prudish that can be traced back to your family? Things like that. So I think freeing up your sexuality in that deep way, in a broad way, allows you to have a much better sexual, sexual life when you're older because it isn't so focused and it isn't so neurotic. Um, so I, have, I have hope that we could become older and even more sexual as we go. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I think I've had different experiences either with friends or maybe people that I see as a social worker because, I mean, I was a the 60s generation, early 70s generation where, you know, it, it, it was free love, sex, and, and, you know, this kind of not necessarily – uh, intimacy, but sexuality. And that so the, as I see people aging, maybe in my cohort, the fear is, well, I can never have sex again and I want to, but I have to do it in a different way. And let's talk about that. You know, it, it's a, a, but I'm still a sexual person. I don't want to substitute food for sex. I don't want to substitute other kinds of good things, but I want to have sex. And I want to, and I think that's kind of what I'm getting at because there's, you know, um, I think that's one of the issues at least that's one of the issues that I see in terms of the aging population, men and women. Yes, I I agree with you there uh, very much. Um, And it's true, different generations have a different sort of background and different issues to deal with. I mean, when I talked about uh, some religious restrictions on your sexuality, that's certainly my generation. I'm I'm quite sure it isn't the the one of the 60s and 70s. But on the other hand, I do think that... um, this idea of expanding your, you know, of being sexual in everything you do and being in touch with that, that what that means is um, allowing uh, pleasure to be an important aspect of your life, to have some pleasures and do things for pleasure. Um, and uh, also uh, the intimacy of living an intimate life generally. I mean, I think it really helps if you can be closer to people generally even people you just meet in business or the things you, your encounters that you have every day, it is possible to be more intimate than we usually are. And you can, you can examine yourself and say, am I a distant person? Am I someone who stays aloof? Is that who I am? Am I afraid of that closeness? If it's there in your everyday life, it's going to be there in your sexuality, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's true. That's that that is well said. What about any big surprises for you, like in in terms of writing this book and and talking to people um, that kind of sort of hit you in the face? Like, well, I didn't expect that kind of a response with this particular topic. Yes, there are a lot of things like that. I'll give you a couple of examples. One you did mention it in passing is um, I have a chapter on legacy on leaving a legacy. And I don't know where that came from. I, I thought that would be the most boring thing to write about. You know, I wasn't interested in legacy. And then I got into it and started writing it, and it became the most interesting thing to me because it has to do with thinking about the future. Um, and that might bring up issues like environmentalism. When we, do we want to leave a sick planet for our children? I mean, that's an interesting thing. Or how can I, I think of this myself as a writer, how can I give something to my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, assuming there will be some, um, how can I give something to them? And I want to think about them. Uh, I mean, tangibly, like, can I leave, like, I want, I want to be able to have my books available for them. I, I, I have stacks of books in my, uh, in my closets and things that I keep because I'm thinking of them. I'm thinking of the future. And that sense of being into the, in the future to some extent is something I don't hear much about today. And so the idea of legacy began to mean much more to me than it ever did before. And it's affected me. Writing about it has affected the way I do things. So who has, when you started in sort of, in, I guess, investigating what it means in terms of legacy, what do, all right, you, you're an author, you have books. They might not be in hardcover. They might be online, but... <laughs> 100 yes, years, 50 right. years from now. But so what other, and you're talking about environment, I don't think we're doing a particularly good job of that, but what no. other kinds of legacies do people leave or 
aspire to want to leave to their grandchildren, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren? Well, there are all kinds of things. They can be physical things. I mean, that's, that's, you know, when I say I'm leaving books, they may be antiques, but at the time my grandchildren yeah. come along, but that's all right. Uh, and uh, the things that have been meaningful to me, there are many, many things around me in my life that are very simple objects, that kind of thing, that, um, uh, that mean a lot to me. And I think carrying over those, those, the emotions attached to objects is an interesting way of leaving a legacy. And another way would be to live a good life and to have stories told about you that might inspire your, your you know, younger people in the future. Uh, I know it's a bit indirect, but that's a very real thing that uh, people are going to talk about you. What are they going to say? And um, I would like to have them feel that there is some warmth and some uh, real values being expressed in my life that may help them, might give them a model or give them someone to talk about, to think about. I think that's indirect, but a very, very good way to leave a legacy. I, get, I tell the story of a man that I discussed. We have, two, min- we have two minutes left. so Okay, I'll do yeah. it briefly. This man okay. was a lawyer and retired and began helping young musicians uh, make it in their life. There are many things we can do when we get older that can leave a direct legacy to younger people around us. Given that, and your book is one of them, I want to mention the book again, Ageless Soul, The Lifelong Journey Towards Meaning and Joy. And we've been talking to Thomas Moore, PhD author, New York Times bestselling author. Um, Thomas, okay, so what uh, website can we go to if we're talking about legacies where we can learn more about what you're doing and uh, uh, and also uh, about learn more about the book and what you're doing? So give us a website or two. Yes, my website, main website is Thomas Moore Soul, thomasmoresoul.com. That's S-O-U-L, thomasmoresoul.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Catherine. It just flew by. Yep. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.